up our Bibles at this time and together read from Psalm 59. The subheading of Psalm 59 is to the chief musician set to do not destroy. A miktam or beautiful golden psalm of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. The word of God, Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me and behold. You therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. And then we have sila, as is often a, a note of pause, it seems, in the Psalms, sila. At evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them, you shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of, in their of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. And for the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be, and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth, another Selah. And at evening they return. They growl like a dog and go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises. For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Thus far we read the word of God. May God use this as a means of grace, the reading and hearing together of God's word. As we consider the Psalms as a congregation, as you who may be visiting, consider the Psalms in your daily devotions. We're struck by the fact that the psalmist has so many enemies, so many enemies here and there, and not only among the Canaanites, but among those who call themselves God's people. We're struck by that, and it's almost surprising to us, until we realize that David is a type of Christ, and Christ himself was uh, assailed on every side by sinners who did not want to hear the message that he comes to save sinners and to put them in their place and to endure the wrath of God for sinners. And also, we shouldn't be surprised 
that David, as a type of Christ, would endure such affliction and opposition because of the total depravity of sinners. It's the nature of sinners to be against God, not just neutral, as they often say they are, but against God is the wicked. And so we should not be surprised by all the enemies that we've been seeing occur in the Psalms. And in case you might be thinking that this is for another day and another person and not for us at all because they have all these enemies and we don't, perhaps we should be rethinking ourselves. Uh, And I mean that, rethinking ourselves. Because maybe it's a problem that we don't have enemies. Maybe we're just coasting along and maybe we're just in this world and, and making, uh, making good with the world and peace in the world and in the name of love and tolerance and so on. And maybe we don't have the courage to speak out. Maybe in our own families, in our own workplace, and in the community. Well, think of that, beloved. And I think that one thing that ought to uh, call us up short... We're thinking we don't have enemies and we don't because we're a bunch of cowards, is the fact that the psalmist, like we, is linked together with us in calling to God for mercy. Mercy is a constant theme of the Psalms and of the whole Bible. In fact, our our call to worship was to celebrate the God of all mercy who showed us abundant mercy in Jesus Christ. And mercy is one of the great themes of this text for the psalmist in speaking of deliverance from the people of God. He he calls out God to be merciful to him and he claims God as my God of mercy, verse 10, who shall come to meet him. And then verse 17, which I would have as a, a text which we could revolve around all of the verses of the text of Psalm 59, we have this confession that God is my God of mercy. And I say, beloved, David calls out for mercy. And you, Christian, if you be Christian, must know something of what this means if you truly would be a word of God Christian, a real Christian. Christ's Christian, the kind that he makes, the people in need of mercy and who receive it. I want to consider, first of all, how personal this confession of David is. He's this one who doesn't say only theologically God is the God of mercy, but he's my God, the God of my mercy. That's rich. And then there's this reason why, there's this reason why David can confess this, and we can too. And we'll, we'll see it has to do with a certain meeting that David anticipates. God will come and meet me, verse 10. And then finally, what this leads to. But there's a progression in the psalm from focusing on the problems to prayer and then to praise. And that's what we should be reminded of if we be the people who know God's mercy, that we're here to progress from problem all the way to praise. That's a foretaste of heaven. It is no small question 
uh, uh, the setting of Psalm 59, we have to understand that the setting, the subheadings of the Psalms were not inspired. I know that may sound shiking, uh, uh, striking to you, and even blasphemous, but be it not so. It's agreed on by all commentators, conservative and liberal, I suppose, who say nothing's inspired, but even the conservative ones who say that the Jews themselves, even as they put in the vowel points in the Hebrew language, which had no vowel points to begin with, but for easy reading, they did that. But for this, they, they cited headings. And some even disagree with this heading. I won't. And the heading has that this is a miktam of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Some think it was another time. And they don't find any evidence of that. But there's, in general, beloved, we follow with trust these subheadings as very true to the, the subheadings, the occasions of the Psalms. And if we look at 1 Samuel 19, we can see what setting this is when Saul sent men and watched the house that David was sleeping in in order to kill him. 1 Samuel 19 and verse 11, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, daughter of Saul, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And then Michael took an image, a, a stuffed uh, representation of David, laid it in the bed, and this was to uh, give David time to escape the enemies who were prowling around like dogs, the psalm says. So this is a setting. And at this time, David acts like any child of God should act. He cries out to God for help. There's these enemies of David. And his prayer is, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. And he describes them, as he has in these psalms, as here, those who rise up against me. And he describes them as uh, workers of iniquity and bloodthirsty men, even dogs, twice in the text, in the psalm, verses 6 and 7, and verses 14 and 15, he describes the enemies, the allies of Saul, as dogs who would eat him up. You know what dogs do? They, they sleep and they, they eat. And it's not that they're being cute when they're begging, they're just being dogs when they're begging and when they're scouring the floor and you wonder why you need vacuum cleaners. But these dogs were the, the, the uh, a terror, a terror in many of the cities and towns of, of Israel. They'd be wild. And David describes his enemies as dogs who would eat him up. And they wouldn't be satisfied until they had him for a feast. Well, David is cognizant of the enemies of God. And... We can be aware of our enemies, too. And sometimes we think that our enemies are the greatest big, uh, the problem of the, of the world and people who oppose us, people who are, are betters, we think, and whom we envy and all of this. But David, he's aware not only of the enemies, but he's aware of his God. 
And this is the keynote of the psalmist David. He's aware of the problems and all the enemies, but he's aware of the one God, and that makes all the difference. And that's why he prays, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. Save me from bloodthirsty men. To God, these words, deliver, defend, preserve, save. Like so many SOSs, save my soul, O God. Deliver, defend, preserve, save. You ever have that? You ever have those times when it's all you could get out your soul, your aching soul, that's the word too. And you were confident, nevertheless, that God heard. You weren't so articulate. You didn't know how to say something. Maybe it was a sigh. And then the sigh, you're saying, I am hurting. And there's these enemies, and, and David as well knew very well that uh, when you look upon the enemies, you have to know that we have seen the enemy and It is I, as the enemy within, the unbelieving foe of God, the flesh, the sinful nature. But God's on his mind because God is David's God, and he's our God too. And this is how we know and can be assured that we are God's because we look at the problems, but we look at God in the problems, and we do this thing called prayer. And we pray to God because he gives us faith to believe that he's going to deliver us from our enemies. It's not just about, in fact, our personal problems that we have. And it could be that uh, trials of life become enemies because we're letting them get at us. And so often sicknesses, for example, become our enemies because they would be used of the devil to tempt us. The trials become temptations and we were sunk then because we know that we cannot resist trials or the temptations of trials except God be our God. So David knows something of theology. He knows that God is God. In fact, he goes throughout the psalm to explicate, to speak out loud of who God is. And this isn't just his remembering what he learned in catechism or in Essentials of Reformed Doctrine, which is all about the doctrine of God, but this is heartfelt. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. And he's having there in his mind someone who's above the fray. In fact, that is the Word, the intent of the word, defend me from those who rise up against me. Literally, it's speaking of uh, God rising David himself up. Lift me up, he's saying, against those who are being lifted up like the high tide. Come to take away my house. And he speaks to God as someone who himself is high. Lift me up, O God, to be where you're at, to be the most high God you are for for Jesus' sake. Lift me up where the tide doesn't reach. The dogs can't snap. Well, they can snap, but they cannot chew and grab into me. He's 
thinking about God. He's thinking about this God most high who's higher than all the problems and higher than David. Later on, in verse 8, he celebrates the sovereignty of God. You, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You'll laugh at the dogs. You'll have all the nations in derision, not only these enemies that are harassing David, but you'll have all the nations in derision. Sounds exactly like Psalm 2. He that is in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Now, this is biblical, of course, and not blasphemy that God would have anyone in derision and even laugh because he knows the end of the wicked and he's laughing at their vain attempts to get at his anointed. But David knows this is the height of piety to speak of God most high whose ways are mercy and whose ways are judgment and their holy ways. What do you think God is doing in our day, beloved? He's venting his wrath upon the wicked and upon the reprobate wicked whom he has ordained to hell and whose are not Christ's, who are not purchased by the blood and who have no hope and who continually steal themselves against God. And when the word comes, they say, no, 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 we're against God and we will not have this God and we will not have this Jesus of the Christian God and we will not have you witnessing of him either. You make us uncomfortable. Your pains in the neck, your thorns, your reign on our parade be done with this light and this shining of the word of God. We don't believe it. Beloved, though the wicked do not believe it, God believes it, that he will have them in derision. And believers believe it. And we even, beloved, as we saw last time, Psalm 58, we celebrate when we see the vengeance. Verse 10 of Psalm 58, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. This is going on in this psalm too. Beloved, it's not wrong to be rejoicing at the destruction of the wicked. This is something that uh, mealy-mouthed and couch-potato Christianity doesn't understand anymore. Jellyfish Christianity, spineless Christianity says no to the God of holiness and the God of wrath. But beloved, when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying to God, destroy all the workers of iniquity in the kingdom of darkness. And lest we think that we're proud in all of this, and this leads to pride, this kind of, this kind of uh, rejoicing that doesn't seem to fit humanity's idea of what is joy and what is grief. Let's remember, and we ourselves, but for the grace and mercy of God, would go the way of all flesh and destruction. So David knows God and his sovereignty, and that God will hear his prayer. David is God's anointed, and God is the God of David. He also knows that he needs mercy. And so he praises God, who is my God of mercy, which shall come to meet him. And at the end, he's speaking of God, who is his strength, to whom he'll sing praises, God who is his defense, and he celebrates my 
God of mercy. Mercy and coming to the realization of mercy is tough. We need things like last night. That is a great storm, completely out of our control, and to turn the lights on and to render us groping around in the dark. We need that sometimes to remember we are all without power. You came this morning and you had power. Well, I'm not threatening to come over and ask a shower of you, but we ought to know we're all without power. This is how we come to church. God is God, and we're all not God. God is holy, and we're all sinful. God is this great being, the fount of every being and of every blessing. And we're just a flea, just a little thing, not even really worthy of the calling of us of men and women and image bearers of God. We're just little beings and sinful. That's things we say to come around to the fact that God is our God and that he shows mercy to us. Usually we're just going around in our self-sufficiency and we flick the light on, turn the shower on, have a cup of coffee in the morning, go to work, go to play, relate to one another, hardly a thought of just how this is all a gift. And we're kept from sin at the end of the day. We say we're sorry. Do you know how much of a mercy that is, beloved? As Peter says, Blessed be the God of abundant mercy. We know that. This is how we link up with David and the enemies. We know something of the help of God, which is what mercy is. He helps, and then to apply it, he helps the helpless. He doesn't help the self-sufficient. He doesn't help those who don't want the help of God who are afraid, maybe, of the help of God to lift them up, to grow them up, and to empower them to live the godly life because they know that implies responsibilities and that implies dangers. Say, this is not for those kinds of people. This is for the kinds of people who say, I need help from heaven. I need saving help and free help and unmerited help. That's grace. And I need help because I'm a pitiful being. That's mercy. That's what David's saying here. Oh, God of my mercy. And note, it's all personal. He knows God is the God of his mercy and my God of mercy. And he knows God who is the rock of my strength. Verse 7, God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, my refuge, my high tower. He is in, is in God and he is the God who, to whom belongs mercy and so on. And he is my God of mercy. Because God 
has taught him. Now, David knew this, this God, and that he's just a recipient of God. Those are the two things I'm trying to make in this point. Because he's a child of God. Children of God know this, but we, we need help along the way, don't we? We're little ones, and how little do little ones really believe that they depend on mom and, and dad? Oh, they believe that, all right, but it's second nature. First nature, I should say, they cry out, they pucker their lips, they want milk, they cry out for mama, they know when danger is, and when danger is, it, as it seems like it's always when mama's not there. And so they're doing this rather intuitively, but when they become older, then there's this sin that kicks in, and we see that too, and they be, start becoming independent, maybe rebellious in, in all of this with regard to what they eat and what they want to do, and, and even if they want to um, take up arms against brother or sister and all of this. We need help, pedagogical help. The help of God the Father of children. David had that. He knew mercy. And when he was a lad, and taking care of the sheepfold, and he fought off enemies, didn't he, children? His enemies were what? Who were the enemies that he beat off with his rod and staff and with courage? Well, lions and bears. Amazing. And then the setting here leads us to the fact that David is more mature, and, and he had fought Goliath great big monster of the Philistines, 10 foot tall, about as tall as a ceiling, higher, just about. Very strong man. The fire of God. Well, David knew then something of the help of God against this great, great monster. But then there's Saul. David is anointed and David becomes aware to Saul and sweet singer of Israel that he is, and he is called to console Saul in his sorrow by playing the harp and so on and singing psalms. And then he becomes envious and he seeks his life. And here he's really knowing enemies, and these are the worst kinds of enemies, enemies in the camp. Saul, the great enemy, against which David is powerless and he flees like the flea that he is from Saul in the wilderness, and perhaps for 10 to 13 years, there he is on the run. He's anointed by Samuel, and yet he's not yet king in glory. He's the humble king, and he dares not touch the Lord's anointed because David knows there's something for him to learn here, and it's mercy. That's it. Mercy. As Moses had to learn mercy in the wilderness, on the backside of the desert, this great big son of Pharaoh who would lead Israel out and who can kill the Egyptians and so on, David had to learn mercy in the backside of a desert in a cave with a ragtag bunch of people, the offscouring of the world and of Jewry, the followers of David. And in this he was learning what we all need to learn. Something of the monstrous evils of those who are against God and us. And this because of Christ. This because David somehow knows he's bearing the reproach of Christ. You see, David 
is not just celebrating the mercy of God for deliverance from earthly enemies. And we don't come to this psalm and we can relate because God delivers us from all of these kinds of enemies. But it's because of Christ that David sings and this word resounds to us and to our our consciences because this is about the sweet singer of Israel, Jesus. Jesus coming and being as a flea and being as no man, ground to powder by the wrath of God. David, in fact, says, they're running and preparing themselves through no fault of mine. It's not for my transgression nor for my sin, O Lord, that these mighty are gathering against him, verses 3 and 4. But Jesus says this, and he's the one who is the, the orator of this truth. For no sin... Does anyone come after Jesus but for righteousness and because he represents God? And David here must not be seen ever, ever, ever as a mere believer. He is that. In fact, he's a representative believer. He's the king of Israel. We're kings in Israel. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit poured out. But David is this representative of Christ. And he stands in the place of Jesus. Now, how much did David know of this? We don't know. Not much. Not near as much as we know. But Jesus cites the Old Testament as proof that he's come and he's the fulfillment of all that David stood for. And his battles are the fulfillment of all the battles of David And his victories are the fulfillment of all the victories of David. It's all about this God of mercy not merely being the object of a catechism lesson or even of some God who's still out there and he's this theological construct, this force to be reckoned with, no, It's all about this God who meets us in the battle. This is brought out when David says, my God of mercy, personal here, shall come to meet me or go before me, be with us. As we sang, God himself is with us. That's verse 10. Reminds us of Psalm 85 and verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. This, beloved, is David speaking of the meeting of meetings of the God of mercy who shows this mercy on Calvary in Bethlehem. In God himself being with us in the person of his son. You see, personal confessions need a personal God who shows himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who were planning on meeting his people and in his good time would meet his people and that would be in the fullness of the time. What are we here for meeting together for? Because God has met with us and meets with us and shall meet with us and what a sweet meeting that will be by and by in heaven. That's our God. 
and he meets with you every day. He meets with me every day. By the grace of God, God still says, I want to have a meeting with you, Mitch, Pastor Dick. I want to meet with you. We need to talk. And you never can say, well, God, you know, I've got appointments. Don't ever say that to God. I don't want to, I don't like this meeting. I'm a little uncomfortable meeting with you, God. Well, don't do that. It's kind of like you should know if you say no to the, the pastor or to the elders who want to meet with you. I'd like to meet with you. Or are you suspecting the worst? Oh, it's going to be, what? And then you say, what for? You ever say that to God? What for? Don't say that. He says he wants to meet. You meet with him. And, and this is what David had to know. Of course. David's not just a man of great faith and of, of this real awareness of things that are small like himself and of God who's great. He's aware of the God of the meeting place. Of the womb of Mary, of the holy conception being conceived by God in his eternal will, this conception in earth of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That's what Christianity is all about, the meeting place. The God with us, Emmanuel. This is Emmanuel's land, the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a great thing. And he meets with us. Over and over again, and he doesn't say, no, I don't have time for you. And you're calling upon him, maybe wrongly. Maybe you've called upon, wrong, God, upon God wrongly. James says, you, you ask amiss, this isn't why you're, this, isn't, this is why you're not being heard. Well, beloved, even though we do that, God says still, okay, we're going to meet anyway, and I'm going I'm to make you understand that you were asking wrongly. God never lets us go. Fathers never let you children go. It doesn't matter how old you are. Remember that. We grow old and decrepit, can't hardly move. But there's something there of God in us, and you meet with God as you have met all your life. It's a wonderful thing. And so we respect that. We truly want to meet with God. But this is meeting with Jesus, or it's no meeting at all. Or Mohammedism is just as right. They have no mediator except Mohammed. That's false, and he's false. And so is Joseph Smith, and so is everyone else who claims latter-day revelation. False mediators calling upon the people of God even to worship God another way than he has directed in his word. And the false gospelists of this age, they want us to meet here and to have it all hyped up and to gather the crowd. But, beloved, God would gather sinners, sheep that's gone astray, chickens that go astray. And all of us who have gone astray, that's why we meet. For a godliness that's unadorned, except or for a truth that's unadorned with all the hype. Very simple. Except with godliness. And that's what we are 
we praise God to see in this church. When, in fact, the psalmist is aware, and since he's aware that this God of mercy shall come to meet him, his whole perspective is not just about his problems. He, he's thinking about God, don't know me, but he's thinking about the God who's the God of Israel. You see, this is what shows the sanctity of this prayer. It's not just this guy has lots of problems. And we should have these kinds of problems because, well, then it's sure as shooting that we're God's people. Let's get persecuted. We have a persecution complex then. It's still about us. No. The psalmist says, Awake to help me and behold, and you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. You see, God meeting with him in another, even Christ, who is the anointed of all anointed ones, expands his horizon to the cause of God, and that all the enemies of David are the enemies of God, and Saul is nothing to David, really, but he's an enemy of God. And so David looks to the whole house of Israel and that God would care for the whole house of Israel and not only gather them from Jewry, but from the nations as we should be concerned, not simply about our personal problems, though we should be concerned about them and about God who's the God of our mercy, but we should be Christ-like and be concerned for the sins of all the world and that God would look in mercy upon his own and gather them. So David has this same ecumenical, ecclesiastical view because he has the theological, God-centered, Christological, Christ-centered, cardiological, person Christ, and with him, who's born again, and thankful for Jesus, who's coming again, it leads to progress. And you find that here. And this is so beautiful. It's a pattern for, for our prayers. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God, verse 1. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Be thou my lifter up against the flood of iniquity. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. Save me from bloodthirsty men. The end is... To you, my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. And then right before that, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you've been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Beloved, is that how your piety looks like? Start with your problems, and there's nothing wrong with that. You should know that. Sometimes we have to start with our problems. Jesus, the, Lord, the, the Lord's Prayer, which is the believer's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, that's a pattern. But sometimes all we can say as Peter is, Lord, save me. When we're on the waters and we're going down fast, and here's in the consciousness of David the same thing. But he has the Father in mind, of course, in the hallowing of God's name, and God leads him to that at the end of the prayer, and this is where we should be led to. This is where worship service should lead us, to praise to God, the God of our mercy. Beloved, is that where he's led you? May God lead you to this piety of praise for the sake of the mercy of God 
and getting that message out to all the world. There's a God of mercy. He's a God of my mercy. He's my God of mercy. Let me tell you about that. Amen. Thanks, Lord, for showing mercy. We're so in need, powerless, without power. You even remind that of us in the flickering of the lights, in the storms. You remind us of that in the great and powerful message, the darkness of Calvary. No lights, even. No flashes of the power except in that darkness, the flash of darkness. Lord, thanks for Jesus. We extol you, Father. May our religion be personal and doctrinal and praiseful. May each of us go home with that wonderful consciousness that this is the kind of religion you're working in us and we've messed up and we ourselves would turn out the lights and ignore revelation. But you are the God who keeps meeting with us. You're that way. The God who is faithful, though we are not. Fill us with joy. Fill us with cheer. May we show this in our meeting afterwards with one another in all the day. And return us to this good house in your good time. Amen.